Hello, everyone. I am Samori, your host, and the fellas are here for another episode of SJH Man Cave. And this week's It Takes a Village. Hudson visits his old neighborhood while I reflect on what the world might be like when Simone comes of age. We'll also tell you about Sean Michelle's, our Black Business of the Week. Then we'll dive into the main topic of violence in Chicago and what we could do to curb it. Remember that you can see this and other videos on YouTube at SJH Man Cave. Once you're there, please hit that subscribe button. You can also like, share, and follow us on Facebook at SJH Podcast Family, Twitter at SJH Man Cave, and email us at info at SJHmancave.com. And with all that being said, let's dive right in. So uh took my wife on downtown. She had to go to an appointment. So, you know, in the meantime, I just started driving around. You know, I happened to to get up to my old neighborhood where I I mean the Harold Dickey homes used to be. And it was just uh I don't know, just this feeling came over me. And I just I, I you know how you can just picture something, you you know, like it was like it was really there. Like I could see all the buildings that were there. And you know, it it'll just it just kinda took me for a minute because everything is completely gone. And you know, I'm seeing things there that that just was not there before. Like, like I, I saw, you know, I saw white people jogging, you know, and and that was an area where you would never catch anything like that before. So just to see some of the changes, I, I saw some some bars that were around that that would never never have been there. I mean, some uh, it. it it was just almost looked like biker bars, which never would have been there before. And I don't know, I, it just was crazy to me, you know, and I, and I think about how much history was, was there, how much, you know, how much good came out of there, how much pain came out of there and how it's just completely wiped out, um, almost like it never existed. And it left me with some very mixed emotions. It's, it's how do you feel about that? You know, it, it was for a long time, that was my world and it's just completely gone. And, uh, you know, they haven't done anything with the area yet. I mean, it's, it's, it's literally just a big old vacant lot now where, where those homes used to stay, where thousands of people used to stay. You know, it's it's where I was learning how to ride a bike. It was it was where it was where I saw or knew about many people who had gotten shot, who had gotten even murdered there. But you know, the crazy part about that environment is is how much pain and suffering was there. It it, it brought a lot of people closer together. It, if it wasn't for nothing but to protect their own kids and to build sort of a community within the community, and it's just hard to believe that all of that can get wiped out and you know who would even know in 20 years who would ever know you know in 20 years there'll probably be some version of a walmart there <laughs> and some other you know whatever big box chains are going to take that area over and it's it's never going to look the same and i don't know guys i just the world turns the world turns and it definitely turned there and it almost felt like a, a part of part of me was just was just lost somewhere in there. Whenever you're looking at an area that's been affected by gentrification, on the one hand, you're like, wow, they just pushed all those black people out and tore down 
their their homes or the businesses that were important to them. But on the other hand, after gentrification is finished, undoubtedly, those areas are safer, cleaner, and, you know, for uh, uh, non-Black people, uh, better places to live. So it's just... It's just hard to see how do we get to that point where we can make our neighborhoods safer and cleaner and still keep those same black folks in it and retain our history and our heritage that is so important to us and is so connected to those areas. So last night, um, there was a shooting out in front of my house. And it happened during the exact time when I was rocking Simone and trying to get her to sleep. And it made me think about what kind of Chicago is she going to experience when she is my age? You know, I've talked on the show before about how my father always kept my brothers and I away from BB guns and Nerf guns and things of that nature because he was concerned about us treating guns like toys. Even when I was a kid, we were having all these issues with with people out here treating guns like toys and shooting people for no reason. And now here we are 20, 25 years later and things are exactly the same and the same issues are occurring. And I'm worried about how do I introduce my child to guns and how do I ensure that she's able to protect herself? And it made me think about 25 years from now when Simone is rocking her child and about to put her child to sleep, what kind of Chicago is she going to experience? Because to be frank, I love this city. I can't imagine myself living anywhere else. I can't imagine going anywhere else. And my hope is that Simone will choose to stay as well when she is an adult. And it made me think about what, what can I do right now to help ensure that she comes into a different Chicago when she's my age? And, you know, I know that's, there's no magic wand for that. And I, I, I'm not going to become president or anything like that. But I've, it's definitely been on my mind that everybody needs to do something. We keep talking about what needs to happen in order for this violence to stop. And I feel like every time the conversation comes up, people start pointing fingers. You know, people start saying, well, why isn't this group doing more or this group isn't doing what they're supposed to be doing? I want to turn that inward and say, what can I personally do as a parent who loves this city and would like my children to continue staying in this city? What can I do to make this the kind of city where they will want to stay in? and won't be dealing with the same type of problems that I had dealt with being here and that my father dealt with before me. I don't have any answers about that yet. I haven't figured out a strategy, but it's it's definitely on my mind that we all need to be pulling and fighting for change. You know, I, I think the reason that that you or, or me or, or anybody doesn't have the specific answers because it's a society problem and the society as a whole needs to needs to have the answer. You know, I, I think it's it's the basis of of I think we all see the problem as being so huge and, and how do we tackle something that big and we just need to we just need to each one of us take it smaller, you know, grab one person up. If we each took one, if each of the brothers out here in Chicago took one young man 
one young man apiece and brought him up right, we wouldn't be in this problem right now. Right. And and it, it it's gonna take it's honestly I think gonna take something like that, but that's my take on it. At the end of the day, the problems lie with people. Always has, always will. Doesn't matter who your politicians are, it's it's people. And uh, we live out here in LaGrange. I'm a suburban guy. Jada is in, well, she will be in sixth grade in the fall. And after that, she'll be moving into junior high. Uh, The school system, or at least this one particular school, the junior high that's in the area, has been having issues with certain individuals in in their school that have been harassing kids of color, which is not that many. Uh, Harassing kids uh, with disabilities. My my first emotional response is to, well, if my daughter decided to tell me that the kid decided to call out of a name or, you know, throw that N-word around that, that people like to throw around so much nowadays just to see what happened, I uh, I kind of want to show them what happened. <laughs> <laughs> but... but but as I say, you know, doing that type of thing hey, let and whatnot. Me do a case study. <laughs> let me, Exhibit let, A. Let me show you something that you didn't know before. <laughs> from a, from an adult aspect of it, let's <laughs> let's, let's give you because if you want to if you want if you want to proceed in this particular direction, you know, let's 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 see where life takes you. Let's let's roll the dice. <laughs> so. You know, but I'm thinking, okay, well, you know, I don't have a lot of money, so I, I don't have a lot of bail. And, it, you know, being one of them kids, I probably wouldn't get bail anyway. And I really have a problem with going to jail. <laughs> so it's not one of the things I want to do. Don't want th- not that kind of lifestyle. I'm not, I'm not, I don't want that kind of smoke. So I, I've been kind of thinking to myself the last couple of days. It's like, well, how do you respond to that type of situation? Now, the one thing me and Cynthia were talking about was that, uh, you know, we were thinking about moving. I mean, we had been talking about moving anyway before we had this discussion, but it's like, okay, well, even if we move nine times out of 10, I'm moving to another suburb, which means, am I dealing, am I still dealing with the same thing anyway? So what, what do I need? What is it that I need to teach my kids on how to handle this? Cause I always teach them number one, in regards to anything, words, words don't hurt. They can say what they like, but the moment they put their hands on you, respond <laughs> you know what i mean so, <laughs> so you know I, but at the same time i don't want to teach my kids to be violent in response to everything because violence doesn't always teach a lesson it doesn't always create a positive move forward so i'm just I, i've really been just kind of hacking around with my brain and it kind of you know reading some whole from martin luther king and malcolm x and how, how did these people get their kids through this stuff? Because they all had kids, so it's like, how did how did y'all how did they get their kids through this stuff? I can tell I, you what my father did. What, what did daddy do? Uh, so he got, he got I, y'all some guns, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> I was outside playing. I think I was around maybe six years old, seven years old, something like that. Uh, two white couples came to walk past us, and one uh, of the men referred to me as the N-word. And he did it in a way where, I, or again, I was a six-year-old kid. These were like young adults. The way I remember them, they were like 19, 20 years old, somewhere in that range. And it was clear he called me that 
to impress his girlfriend. And that and I remember his girlfriend being impressed, thinking that it was funny and, and, and tough. But I didn't really know what it meant, but I knew it was an insult. So I went back home, but my father was on the phone with his door closed. And I always knew, hey, if, he's his, if his door is closed, stay away until he finished. So I sat outside his door until he came out. He opened the door and said, why are you sitting here? And I was like, these people passed by. They called me the N-word. You know, I thought you should know. And his whole face, <laughs> his whole face changed. He closed the door. And I heard a sound that I now realize means that a gun was being loaded. <laughs> it comes back out and says, show me where they are. <laughs> oh, wow. we, we went outside and we searched for like 30 minutes to an hour. He wanted desperately <laughs> to find them. And I have no doubt, <laughs> no doubt whatsoever in my mind what would have happened if dad had actually found those people. <laughs> so... I don't know if that helps you find an answer, but I figured I'd give you a different I'm just picturing all this in my head right now. They said, what? Like his pops? (laughs) Right, right, right. (laughs) He didn't click back. And he was, ooh, he was heated at me. He was like, why didn't you just knock on my door and tell me? I was like, you had the door closed. I didn't want to. Samori, someone talk to you like that? Someone tell you like that? You tell me immediately. And I'm like, all right. <laughs> or, you know, my my father might not be the best person to copy. <laughs> Your pops is awesome. I love that dude. He's a rare breed. <laughs> He's absolutely a rare breed. <laughs> How about I teach my daughters, I say, okay, somebody mess with you like that. I want you to find out what they want to do for a living. You know, I want you to keep track of them and keep track of what they're doing. You know, oh, they want to be a doctor. Make sure you're the head of that hospital and you control them. (laughs) You know, I I believe in long term. Make sure you own whatever company they're going to work at. You know, and you're here for the long game. Like, let's go. Hudson wants you to hold all that rage and pettiness on the inside. Years. Years. 20 years later, invite him into the office for the interview. Hi, come on in. Sit down. Remember me? (laughs) Thank you, Jason. Uh, That was very, definitely interesting. And if you come up with an answer, if you make a decision about what you're doing in that situation, definitely please let us know. Next up is the Black Business Showcase. This week, we wanted to put the spotlight on Sean Michelle's homemade ice cream. The men of SJH Man Cave are not small fellas, so we like a good dessert spot. And like the name suggests, the ice cream is all made in-house. And ice cream isn't the only thing they have. If you're looking for delectable, delightful, delicious desserts, then check this place out. These folks have been ice and creams and peach and cobbler since 1994 and are now doing their thing in Bronzeville at 46 East, 47th Street on Chicago's South Side. For you family men like us, don't be stingy. Take the kids to get some ice cream. I encourage you to take a look at their menu at SeanMichelles.com and subscribe to their mailing list for news and special offers. Just hit the Contact Us link. If you sign up as a member, you can buy ice cream and get the same ice cream free on specific days. You can also show them some love on all the major social media platforms, Facebook, 
Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat. But if you're old school like me, just give them a call. 773-615-3238. Tell them we sent you. Some of that peach cobbler. I hear they got some apple cobbler too. <laughs> I've had apple it? cobbler before. Ooh. But the peach cobbler, I know for a fact, is off the chain. And the peach cobbler, mulch peach cobbler, I eat. I have to have some ice cream with it. Like I don't like peach cobbler just by itself. I just eat that peach cobbler straight. <laughs> like, no ice cream, no whipped cream, nothing else required. Just give me the cobbler. And that's hey, it. folks, here's how fat I am. Uh, throw me a piece of that apple and that peach in the same bowl and throw a little scoop of ice cream on there real quick. <laughs> do, do you look like that when you go up to the counter? Is that how you look? Hey, hey, hey. That, that peach and that apple you got right there, put that in the bowl, okay? Put a little oh, scoop of that ice cream on there. Wow. I don't want do no it. puny scoop either. I want that overflowing scoop you do for them over there. <laughs> you got one of them old metal scoops and whatnot. Remember them old scoops they used to have at 31 Flavors when they get in there and they dip out that whole top layer of that whole ice cream barrel? I want that. Mm-hmm. I want it covering my cobbler. I don't want to see my cobbler till that ice cream melt. And that cobbler better be hot. No. Apple, peach. Put them in the same bowl. Give me that scoop. That fat mix it up a little bit. Take that bit spoon. Mix it. Mm-mm. No, don't mix it. I'm going to mix it. I want to mix my own cobblers. Let me mix. Leave that ice cream alone. Just put it on the top. Let me mix. That's my job. Next up is What's New in Your World, where Jason will talk about his experience starting his first podcast. Sure. Start talking about a little something about me. First of all, my name is Jason Martin Johnson Sr. I earned my senior, so I'll take that. I'll be turning 41 and slowly but surely been realizing a lot of changes in my life. Uh, a lot of different things and a lot of different movements. One being this podcast. Uh, I'm learning a lot about myself, just actually having potential in regards to putting effort towards something that I believe in, putting effort towards something that I think can be successful. Uh, I, I have spent the majority of my life, luckily with two good friends of mine who I'm lucky enough to do this podcast with, who have seen me, unfortunately, there are times where I, I just didn't take the initiative or I had difficulty in understanding things or that my, my life was kind of like just in a bit of a haze. Uh, I was lucky enough to have two good friends who helped guide me. I'm older than both of them, but I do realize that I still have my faults. I have my demons that I, that I battle just about every day. And... In the process of doing so, we've we've come together, and it's one of the most amazing things and the most exciting things that I think I've ever done in my life, especially to have two of my good friends with me involved in creating something where we're charged with an opportunity to make a difference. Fight to bring back common sense in the grand scheme of things. Learning what, what our kids are going to become and how we're going to teach them to grow and to how to be confident in themselves. I'm lucky enough for the last couple of years that I've been learning how to have confidence in myself. Starting this podcast, I believe, is a is a direct expression of it. I'm looking forward to what's coming with this. I'm looking forward to the growth that we're all going to have in doing this, the growth that I'm going to have in just learning what it is to become a professional in regards to doing this type of activity. 
and uh, putting in the work that's necessary to make it successful, to help it grow, to share it with people who who might not have a guide or might not have an opportunity to, or, or don't feel like they have an opportunity to be something of their own. They're not able to tap into their own potential. And I'm, I wish to be an example to say that you can, and I'm looking forward to digging as far into my potential as possible. And at the same time, I'm looking forward to doing it with my best friends. That's awesome, Jason. That's awesome. I think there are a lot of people who are just like us thinking about doing a podcast or just thinking about engaging in some sort of opportunity to make their voice heard and some sort of fear is stopping them, pulling them back from doing that. So hopefully hearing your story and hear about how you're trying to pursue those goals and make your dreams happen will inspire someone else to do the exact same thing. Pass around the the collection plate because it felt like I was. (laughs) (laughs) I was definitely feeling it. Don't don't act like I won't take it now. (laughs) Don't act like I won't take it. (laughs) For our main topic, we wanted to discuss violence in Chicago after 15 people were shot in a drive-by assault on a funeral. CPD Superintendent David Brown said the city has over 117,000 gang members spread across 55 different gangs. For our non-Chicago listeners, let's take a moment to review two major milestones in Chicago's history that help explain how we got here. In 1997, Larry Hoover and 39 other leaders of the Black Gangster Disciple Nation were convicted of running a criminal enterprise with an estimated 30,000 gang members across the city. This caused a power vacuum, and low-level members violently revolted against any attempted oversight from middle management. What was once a solid group crumbled into dozens of small crews. In 1999, the land Cabrini-Green sits on was gentrified, forcing 15,000 residents into Section 8 housing across the south and west sides of the city. Places that used to have one or two dominant crews were now confronted with three or even four different crews all in the same area. These two separate situations help explain why Chicago's gang problem is so different from the rest of the country. From a murder standpoint, we are in a significantly better position now than we were during the 80s and 90s. Last year, we had 510 homicides. In 1992, we had 920 homicides. It doesn't feel like it's getting better because everything is on camera and news spreads like wildfire on social media. So now that we're on the same page, let's move forward with my first question. Do we believe Mayor Lightfoot is doing everything she can to solve this problem? Hudson, your thoughts? Uh, You know, I'm really into the defund the police. When I see her talk, uh, you know, I, I I listen less to her words and I pay more attention to her demeanor, her actions, the way she's kind of standing. And she seems to have this tough on crime demeanor kind of a thing she's got going. And and I think and I think that's just not the way to go. It's not the way to go. Um, you know, given it, it hasn't proven effective, giving people more time or putting more police in, in high crime areas. It, it hasn't worked. What she needs to do is invest in these communities. We need more black businesses in these communities. We, we need people not to walk down their streets, down their blocks and see boarded up houses sitting there. You know, I mean, we, 
we need some of those. We need to see our neighborhoods beautiful the way that they should be. And we need to be able to take pride in our neighborhoods. And, and we just can't do that. I, I can't point to my daughter, hey, there's a black business owner just like you can be one day. You know, how do I do that? That's what I think she can do. Invest in the communities. Make sure these banks are lending properly. Make sure we get businesses. Make sure our, our, our areas look beautiful. The only place beautiful can't just be downtown. It can't just be areas of the north side. Uh, the reason you see the difference in numbers and whatnot from the 90s to now and whatnot is simply votes. Uh, these people don't get reelected and whatnot with high numbers of murders. So what do they do? They they coordinate with the police as they've always done over the years. Well, not even always done. Because when you mentioned like how it was in the 90s, you know, it was just, it was daily. There was nobody else that was running for mayor. So it wasn't an issue of getting votes for him because he was going to be mayor, period. So the way things were, Daly's big thing was, you know, O'Hare and and basically leaving his legacy behind and whatnot, which kind of started around that time, which is where you saw the majority of those project buildings and everything got torn down. They basically, they, they took all these folks in the ghetto and gave them houses. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Section 8 opened up real hard, took all them people and whatnot that they took out of them project buildings down there on 39th and everywhere else from the west side, all of them, Hornets, all them little ghettos and whatnot. They took, they tore them all down and they gave everybody tickets to houses out in neighborhoods. I know because I was one of the neighborhoods that they allowed most of these to come and live in. I remember how my block used to be. It was a quiet neighborhood. Maybe a few, you had a few gangbangers and whatnot around at the time. And in the 90s, yeah, it was a war zone. You know what I'm saying? What area did you live in? I lived in, I was, I lived in West Pullman when I was growing up. That's a Roseland or 122nd, anywhere between 122nd and I'll I'll just say 103rd. You know, everything in there and whatnot was, you know, it it, it was tough. You had to be a little something and whatnot, but like you say, like there was much more structure when it came to the gang element there. You know, they had their lieutenants, they had their older heads, they had their sessions and whatnot where they, you know, they actually punished people for bringing too much attention to their sets or whatever the case may be. But, you know, once, once most of those little young guys and whatnot got older, you know, they either killed off all the old lieutenants because they were steady trying to tell them what to do or all the old guys left before they got killed. Crazy. <laughs> they all moved. How do you then, kill the whole mid tier? I don't. I don't understand that. They like, pulled it off. I know that. I I know of three dudes. I I can't. I don't remember their names, but I know they was lieutenants and whatnot. Most of them was folks who went around my neighborhood. So you know, a lot of them cats shoot. I remember one guy popped right in the park and whatnot. That was a block away from me, and it blew everybody's mind when they did that. So they was they was literally just they they took out the leadership, and then these young cats they took over, and then that's when you produced that. Uh, we give no fucks generation is what I like to call them. I know they call them millennials <laughs> and all the other bullshit, but literally for the last what 10, 15 years, all you heard, which, what all did you hear young motherfuckers say was, I don't give no fucks. I give no fucks. I give none. I have no fucks to give. I, I got none. That's the generation of whatnot that you're dealing with right mm-hmm. now. That's out here mm-hmm. doing most of this killing and shooting and whatnot. I just don't care. I live on 122nd Agustin. If I had a crew of six dudes, they would be totally different from the ones on 122nd and Normal or 122nd and Stewart, which is a block over in either direction. 
and y'all warring. How is that possible? How are any of y'all out here making money if y'all all doing the same thing on the same stretch of three blocks? <laughs> so all you're really doing is just killing each other at this point. I think that's one of the fascinating things about what's happening right now compared to what was happening in the 90s. In the 90s, it was all about money. They ran these gangs like corporations. That's why there were rules. There weren't rules because they loved black people or they respected the community. They were rules because they realized too much heat from the police or from politicians would affect their money train. And so they had strong discipline about when people could shoot and the situation where people could shoot. Mind you, those rules were still applied liberally. Like I said, the murder rate was much higher during the 90s than it was now. But now I feel like money is not really what these people are fighting about. Like people always mention money and, and drugs when they're talking about this violence. But these people, they're not nation building. They're not pulling together blocks. They're not gangs with hundreds of people. These are crews of four or five guys. They're shooting each other about respect. They're shooting each other because the slightest bit of disrespect or the slightest bit of, I think you're against me, and their immediate reaction is rage and violence. You know what? Y'all, y'all touched on y'all touched on what's really going on. We 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 took out middle management, and and the reason that happened was is because honestly, it, it's it, it's because no one wants to be in middle management. If you think about if you think about any corporations, any companies, the hardest job to have is a supervisor or a manager. Those are the hardest jobs to have because you are getting you are getting lit up from the people above you who want more profits and the people below you mm-hmm. who who want better working conditions and more pay. And you're getting hit up by all of them. And so and now when you think about that and you transfer it to a gang situation, to a drug dealer enterprise, well, the states get hired, get hired. You don't just get fired or get a bad review. You end up dead. So so who wants to be in that spot? I'd rather have my own crew and run it the way I want and instill that fear in them and not have somebody over me. When that happened, now you've got all these upper management folk who are like, well, I could just wholesale to each of these different crews. You know, and now instead of a corporation, you got a pyramid scheme. You know, it's basically what it turned into where you got all these different people in the pyramid now fighting for each, fighting for their little piece and try to hold on to their little piece. Anywhere in America where you take the middle out, you got trouble. If I was going to ask the mayor to do something, I would ask the mayor to support to fund the police. Again, at the press conference they had, they had on Alderman Moore, who I guess is the alderman that is responsible for the area where the funeral home was that got that got shot up. And he mentioned that there needs to be a huge amount of investment into black communities. And he said it needs to come from the private sector. And he was basically saying that large scale private sector businesses need to come together and invest a billion dollars into black communities in Chicago. And everybody listening right now and everybody on this call knows that that ain't going to happen. So I feel like- Who who would do it? Who would do it in their right mind? Who in their right mind is going to invest a billion dollars when people is out here getting murdered on the street? 
Who who's gonna do that? Why would you even bother asking people to do that? That's oh my god. <laughs> to fund the police is really the answer. Because it's readily apparent that the police cannot really resolve the crime issues that we're having right now. If the police are not really the answer, then why are we giving them 40% of the, of the budget for the city? That doesn't make any sense. So to me, you defund the police, you reduce them down to the roles that they should actually have, and then you can reinvest that money into the black community. Well, you know, keep in mind when we talk about defunding the police, the real thing is making sure that there's opportunities out there for these young brothers to to not go into the gang. So, I mean, a lot of these people, they they really don't see the bigger picture of what they can become because it's just not in front of them. You know, you go to public school, it's just not in front of you. That future, that future you can talk that game about you're going to be a lawyer or a doctor, but you just don't see it. I went to Williams School right there on 26th in Dearborn. No, none of us saw a, a real future. When they asked us what, what we wanted to be, oh, lawyer, doctor, you know, those generic answers. No one said astronaut. No one, no one said engineer. No one, no, one, no one gave any answers that you even thought that they actually thought about this or that they were real. You know, no one had, there, there's no real goals coming out of there. The only people you see really that have expendable cash, and this is what we're talking about, because we know a lot of these drug dealers do not have, you know, they can't buy homes and they can't do this, they can't do that. A lot of them don't have, don't have cash to last them through next week, but they have that little knot that they can flash until they got to go to their supplier and give that knot up to get some more, right? And they can flash that. And they got more money than that five-year-old, that six-year-old, that seven-year-old has ever seen. And it's all expendable cash for them. So it looks like they balling. But they don't have they don't have that kind of money. And the kids don't understand that. So they just don't see another way. And if we can defund the police, get these community programs, and, and get these businesses in the neighborhood, the kids can start seeing there's other avenues. Is there anything the cops can do to make the situation better. You know, there's a whole other side of folks who say, well, we need more cops. We need to invest more in cops. We need to bring in the National Guard. We should welcome Trump bringing in federal troops. Would more federal officers or more police make this issue better? Didn't the city put 1,200 more cops out on, what, what weekend was that, the 4th of July? <laughs> they put... They put 1,200 more officers out on the street on the 4th of July, and more people died than they did at their funeral home. Facts. So, Facts. I, I'm going to I need to understand how the numbers game work if that's the case and whatnot. If, if your game is, is you going to send more police. Now, unless you're talking about putting one on each corner, I'm going to need you to tell them to turn in the way where the crime is happening. How about that? Maybe if they look. Maybe if they look to the right instead of the left where the gunshots is coming from, maybe some, maybe, 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 maybe your numbers will work for me. But your numbers game ain't, no, it's not on point. You keep talking about more police. What you gonna, what you gonna start putting police officers in people's houses? We need this officer to sit in here and make sure don't none of y'all die. But he, but he's sitting on the back porch. That's not helping. They sitting in Bobby Rush's office taking naps. <laughs> So, now, in, in their defense, in their defense, they said that they were napping in Bobby Rush's office. I was so sleepy. <laughs> right in here. 
<laughs> they, were, they were napping in Bobby Russ's office. Oh my God. Um, Lightfoot had told all the cops to stand down because she had so told they them, broke hey, in do to an office. Well, no, no, the office had already been broken in, and then they, the police, were oh, called because oh. so, so they just after broke in and went and took some naps. You know, we can't just go home because we need to be able to clock in to get our full check. So they just spent the rest of their shifts laying around and popping popcorn <laughs> until. So they was. they after broke in after it was already broke into. And they just went in and took some naps and made some coffee and, <laughs> and waited until it was time to get off work. They was investigating the popcorn and the coffee to make sure <laughs> that they hadn't been tampered with. Thank you very much. How about they walk a beat again? How about we actually see them walking outside? How about we see them actually talk to Miss Johnson on the porch? Care. Who who is having who is having her lemonade? How about they go talk to her and see how she's doing? You know, maybe she'll give them some inform. Maybe she'll end up giving them some information about some things she's heard about, or let them know some of her concerns. How about they show up to a block party? I've been to multiple block parties since I've been back and have not seen one officer. How about they show up to those block parties, not even in uniform? How about they just come in regular clothes and just actually talk to the citizens that they actually that they're actually there to protect? How about? They actually, if they're going to be in the schools, which I don't agree they should be in the schools, how about, A, again, they're not in uniform. You know, how about they talk about things about how they can make sure they don't get abducted, you know, Uh, things that they need to watch out for, how the kids can stay safe as opposed to just having them there at the school just looking uh, looking like soldiers standing there. I see the murder rate as a reflection of the community. Like Hudson just said, the police catch you after you've committed a crime. But everything that happened to you before you committed that crime, you know, a lot of that has to do with your community and your environment. Police keep killing black men and our communities and, and keep locking them up. And we keep producing brothers that are willing to go out in the streets and murder other people. We keep producing them. It's a community issue. It's us. And I feel like the only way it's ever going to change is when we start caring, really caring about this issue, caring about one another and deciding we're going to band together and stop this from happening. That that decision can't come from the police. It has to come from us uh, on an individual granular level. And I want to be absolutely clear. Personally, I see Chicago as ground zero for police brutality. This is the first place ever where the police committed violence on a mass scale that caused the media to to say it was a police riot, that the police rioted against their own citizens that they were sworn to protect. This is the only place where I know of that a commander is convicted, convicted in court of torturing 200 black people over the course of 20 years and getting them falsely accused. And then on top of that, in the Chicago court systems, being sentenced to four and a half years for torturing 200 people and only serving three and keeping his pension. Things are bad all over the country. Things like that are unique to Chicago. 
So I'm not trying to let the, the police off the hook. The police need to do a lot of work with repairing their relationship with the community. Police have to be the ones to take the first step in that. And the first step is some acknowledgement, some acknowledgement about what they have been doing to us. Because to date, I feel like there has been none. But at the end of the day, the murder rate, whether or not your child is willing to pick up a gun and walk the streets and murder somebody else over nothing is a reflection of how they were raised, where they were raised, and their culture. You cannot blame that on the police. Yes, I understand that the murder conviction rate is extremely low in this city. And that a lot of these kids know they can shoot somebody and potentially get away with it. But just because you believe you can get away with something doesn't mean that you go out and do it. We have to take responsibility for our kids. And a lot of people don't want to do that. A lot of people just want to point fingers at them, call them terrorists, say they need to be locked up and wash their hands of them. I, I, I had a very bad opinion earlier. I was thinking with my emotions. I really felt that this, 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 this last two decades of young people, I really believe that they were lost. I really believe that there's no coming back for them. I know that that's bad of me to say because I, I want to be somebody who changes people. I want to be able to inspire people to do better. But some of this stuff seems like it's so far gone that it's, that I think we need to stop thinking about changing these people and learning how to protect the young, the youth and whatnot that's behind them. Learning how to protect them and educate them and give them something better and getting them away from the example of what's in front of them. I don't, I don't want to give up on people. And I'm, and I'm talking about like just the aftermath of seeing a baby laying on the ground shot it it does something to me. For some reason, when I saw that little girl sitting in front of that, that funeral home bleeding, I pictured Jada. And it made me angry. It made me so mad. And I and I was talking to my wife about it earlier. It's like, I don't I don't know what I would do if I just happened to be driving through Chicago because, you know, sometimes you got I gotta go see my friends. And a spray and a, a stray bullet enters my car and hits my daughter. And I feel like if you're not turning these dudes in and you're not saying nothing about it, or you're not even going, if you ain't even got enough fortitude to go and take care of it yourself, I think you're part of the problem. Plain and simple. Ain't no way in hell you going into a neighborhood, bunch of motherfuckers out here that everybody got their ear to the streets and whatnot, and you don't know who shot this kid. Because these motherfuckers is bragging about it, they laughing about it after they go back to their houses, smoke some weed and sit there and play video games or whatever the hell they do and shit all day. It, it makes me angry just thinking about it. You know, when we were coming up, and that's when the, the crack epidemic really started taking hold. You know, the movie New Jet City came out, and <laughs> I mean, all this stuff was going oh, on. Yeah. Now, when you think about those, those people who were addicted to crack and, and addicted to all types of drugs during that time, you know, they had babies. <laughs> and these babies came along and it starts to come into that generation that you're talking about is lost. You know, like I, I've read stories from people who've adopted babies who whose mothers were addicted to a to a substance such as crack. And 
and they talk about how these babies come out addicted already. And they also talk about when these kids grow up, the, the different mental problems that these kids have developed, how, how these parents are scared to even leave their kids with their other children when they have them. They're, they're scared to even leave them there. Um, when, you, when you read stories like that, it really starts to bring into a perspective of how much in control are some of these youth? Are they lost? You know, you, you could make a great case to say that they might be. Um, so I guess the question is, what do you do with all that information, even when you have it? What I can say is the only thing I can see is when we defund the police, we need some extra help in, in community outreach, some extra help in, in counseling and, and encourage these people to actually see somebody. Because there's a lot of pain cycling through on those streets that that are just manning them, manifesting itself into a gun, into a into a hurting someone else. Do you feel like Black Lives Matter should be taking a stronger stance regarding violence within the Black community and organizing marches around that? Or do you believe they are correct to put the majority of their focus on police brutality? Kind of seems like they're not really prepared to do any of it. The whole movement seems to be surrounded by the need for white people to wake up and see what's happening. Is it that the way the civil rights movement was, though? It seems a little different. Just off of the simple fact that right now, it seems like the white voice is what's guiding the Black Lives Matter movement. And it wasn't like that in the civil rights movement because you had leaders that were stepping to the forefront. It's just like you say, like these three women, I, I don't even know who they are. I've never heard them. And whoever these leaders are, I know Hudson, like he likes the guy here in Chicago. What's his name? Jamal Green. I've, I've never heard him speak, but I mean, I've, I've seen a few videos and whatnot, him and Chase Bant, but I don't think he's a black lives matter leader, right? He's just the activist. So you feel like Black Lives Matter won't get involved in, in situations of black-on-black -black violence because it's really run by white people? I don't think it does anything for them. Chicago comedians are getting together right now and are doing what they can to try and do something again. You barely even heard about it. You heard about it on Channel 7 News for about a two- or three-minute spot. Mm -hmm. Other than that, you don't see any video on it. Uh, that, 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 that pastor and one that's on 76th and Racine, that man has been speaking about violence in the neighborhoods and whatnot, and he's been marching and doing all kinds of stuff for years. And you, and you, Father Flager, yeah, you've you've never you you've never seen a video. So the white voice for right now gets to talk to CNN and push their thing across, and which kind of fuels the fire for conservative arguments that Black Lives Matter is literally just a leftist movement. It's a liberal movement because it's white people that's running it. I don't I don't see anything black involved in it. They why are we, why are black people involved with Christopher Columbus? I don't understand. What did he bring black slaves over here after he started killing Indians? So why 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 are Black Lives Matter matching over star statues of Christopher Columbus? And as long as they're on the news and the laws they're being talked about and whatnot, it's fine. But if you come into a black community and try and make statements, who's going to listen? Ain't going to be no TV cameras there for that. They don't care about that. I think personally they should stay in the lane that they're in. I mean, if you if you think there needs to be a movement, why don't you do some legwork, get out there and help 
help start this movement, help fund this movement that you want to see. Start talking to your aldermen. Start start talking to some of the, the local community activists that are around because there are some around. Um, so uh, this whole thing of, hey, why doesn't Black Lives Matter do this? Do they need to do everything for you? I, I mean, why, why is my sink? Why is my sink flooding? Let me get Black Lives Matters over here. I mean, we we have to we have to get out of this mindset of why well, don't stop pointing the finger. I think some more you said earlier, stop pointing the finger out. Why aren't you doing it? Why aren't you doing it? How about you go ahead and, and make something happen? But stop telling other movements what they should and should not do with their movement. It is their movement. <laughs> I mean, that's plain and simple to me. There's a huge swell of black people who believe that the real issue is the way black people kill each other and that the police brutality is a secondary issue. So where is the movement or the organization that is coalescing all the people that feel that way and gathering their resources to try to really fight you know, what you would call black on black crime? I don't see it. I see a whole lot of people sitting around pointing fingers at Black Lives Matter saying, well, why don't you guys do that? as if two organizations can't exist at the same time. There are multiple issues currently impacting the Black community, right? You got police brutality. You got uh, violence where Black people are killing other Black people. You've got drug addiction. You've got mental health. You've got lack of housing availability. I don't feel like if you create an organization that attack, that tackles any one of these issues, that you should then end up with a bunch of criticism from the black community saying, well, why don't you deal with these other four issues as well? If my passion is housing and I want more black people to have a roof over their heads and a clean area for them to live, and that's what I'm working towards, why should I have to deal with a bunch of people coming at me saying, well, why don't you speak about this police brutality and what the police are doing out here? Like, I feel like there should be room for a bunch of different organizations to all be working towards the same goal of, of a safe, successful, stable black community. There's a thing in business where where you get you you get these moments where you get caught up in the weeds and you lose track of the overall goal. Because when we talk about black on black crime, we're typically talking about why is Joe Blow shooting Joe Schmo over here? And if they get caught up in the weeds of every time uh, who would you who would you say Lil Dirk? You know clears out and, and, <laughs> right? if, they, if they go into those weeds they'll never come out because there's literally just so much of it that they will never come out and go to that big picture which is defund the police and, and get these communities revved up again so then I, I think we come then to the last question i have regarding this topic what can we do and i mean that on a very very individual level what can i do to help stop it you know, I mean, quite honestly, stop, you know, don't don't look at don't look at the big the big overall issues. Try to stay away from looking at that big pie and trying to eat the whole thing. You know, you, you can only take one bite at a time. So I, I think I, I, I said it earlier. I'm going to say it again right now. If, if each of us takes one young person and mentors them, take one person besides besides your family besides your find that one person on your block that that you walk past every day they're they're on the corner you never say two words to them stop and say hi to that person 
see what they see how they're doing you know talk to them about how you lived how you survived you know let them know there's something else out there see if see if they're looking for somebody to just kind of just look up to besides all the other stuff that's going on out in the streets you know because that's how we're losing them we're not talking to them and i think we all know someone like that let's go find them go talk to them that's what i say we can do i am almost on a weekly basis where either my wife comes and tells me that either my sister-in-law is telling me that i need to come and talk to one of her kids or I receive a call from my sister telling me about one of my nephews or something like that. And I'm most of the time when I, when I get that call, I'm like, leave me alone. I don't, I don't want to. <laughs> so, but eventually at some point in time, I end up stopping and I'm having a conversation with one of them and they, they, they're doing something stupid. And I, I just share my experiences. It's some stuff I wish I never had. I wish I, I would have never had the experience, but I did. And this is where I am. And if I have the information, the experience to tell you, hey, uh, you might not want to go through that. Or I think you should go through this. This, this is going to be awesome. And that, that's part of healing at the same time, too. Because when you start talking about good things around one person and, and people hear that around you, that could become infectious. It, it, that could be worse than the coronavirus. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'd love to pass that around. We need more black men who are willing to mentor the kids that are around them. We got way too many kids who really don't have a positive black male influence in their lives. And there's no man teaching them how to operate, teaching them how to deal with anger, teaching them how to interface with women. They, they don't have it. They don't have it. And so basically they're teaching themselves. And what they're teaching themselves is, hey, you can do whatever you want. And it's a problem. You know the ones so, I hate? I hate the ones that have zero personality. You ever see them dudes? <laughs> when they, 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 like all they, when they talk to you, they just mumbling. Can I get it in the napkin? Dude, where's your personality? Like, did you just grow up and not be like funny or nothing? You have zero personality. They've never had to figure out themselves. I mean, my it's hard God. to have a personality if you don't know yourself. You're like a blank avatar, something. <laughs> Stop mumbling. Enunciate. Tell me your name. <laughs> you got to be willing to care about a child who's not your own, who's not who doesn't even necessarily share the same blood as you. You know, if you see that child out on the corner every day, and you know that child is basically out there alone, figuring things out for himself, go talk to him. Go talk to them. And look, I know I'm not trying. I'm really not trying to say that's a small thing. All right. These kids can be violent, incredibly disrespectful, incredibly aggressive. Approaching one of these kids when they don't know who you are can easily go wrong. I got plenty of horror stories of people approach one of these kids with their hands up and got guns pulled on them. All right. So I'm not trying to say that this is a small thing. I'm trying to say it's the only way forward. I'm saying that nothing's going to change until until we start doing this. What is really, really missing in our community that on an individual level, we can all try to contribute is leadership. I think most people want to be followers. And so because of that, they don't want to be that first person who says, you know what, I'm okay with talking to the police and I'm going to go out here and talk to the police. 
They don't want to be the person to organize the block club. They don't want to be the person to say, you know what, I am going to take ownership of pulling this part of the community together and fighting back against what's going on. Most most people are sitting around waiting for somebody else to do that. We have reached a point as a city and as a country where Black people in these communities, we need to be looking inside and saying, you are the leader. You are the fire starter. Nothing is going to happen until you decide to get involved. Nobody is coming to save you. Nobody is coming to help you. So if you want things to change, make the decision that you want to be part of that change. That's the decision that I've come to. I decided that I'm going to try to start a block club in my community. So I called two of my neighbors today and said, hey, if I try to start a block club, is that something you all would be willing to help me with and would be interested in? And these are people that I've never spoken to on the phone. I mean, I see my neighbors, I wave to them, but we, we don't attend barbecues together. I ain't the make new friends type, to be honest with you. So I don't go around just talking to people in my community, but it's obvious that there are problems that are not going to change until I do something about it. So I call these brothers up and it seems like they feel the same way that I do that. Hey, something needs to change. But, but it was interesting. One of the brothers said to me exactly what I just said now. I, I'm more than willing to follow. <laughs> I don't want to lead. I don't want to be at the head. But if you lead it, I'm more than willing to follow it. We need more leaders. We need more people willing to, to lead and take control and say, I'm passionate enough and care about this issue enough to step out front and be a part of bringing about change. All right, everyone. That is it for today. I want to thank you for joining us here at the SJH Man Cave. We appreciate you spending time with us today. I'd like to give a special thanks to Sean Michelle's for providing quality desserts and service in the Black community. If you are looking for a tasty treat, be sure to stop by or give them a call at 773-615-3238. Let's support our Black businesses, y'all. Once again, if you are a Black business owner and would like to get featured as our Business of the Week, please make sure to send an email to info at sjhmancave.com. Any of our listeners can get a hold of us there as well. Remember that you can hear this and other episodes on all your major podcast platforms. We are also on YouTube at SJH Man Cave. Once you're there, please hit that subscribe button, like, and leave a comment. You can also like, share, and follow us on Facebook at SJH Podcast Family. I would like to thank my two fellow podcasters, Jason and Hudson, for keeping it real. Until next time, this is your host, Samori, signing off. Peace.